You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas. I'm the author of the book, Champion of the World, and I'm a lead writer over at BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, he's rallying around California, dressed like El Chapo with anacondas on his feet, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing all right. I didn't. These are actually not anacondas. I, I meant to clarify that before we went on the air. Uh, these are pet shop boa constrictors. Do so, would anacondas make good shoes? Is that? I mean, I know that there are snakeskin well, boots, right? But naturally, the bigger and scarier the snake, the better the boots. Chad, that, don't be an idiot. I suppose. Yeah, you make a good point, Ben. Uh, given today's, given the nature of today's news cycle, should we just sit here in silence? Yeah. For a few minutes, just checking Twitter to make sure that shit does not change. During the introduction to the show. I think what we need to do here is embrace the inevitability that this is a pointless and futile exercise. Yeah, we're that about actually to do here. feels freeing to yeah. me to just embrace that. We now more than usual even are just two ignorant men. By the time that this this podcast comes out, whatever we say here will be probably proven directly wrong and irrelevant and useless. And the whole world will have change for MMA purposes. So let's just, let's all make our peace with that and then move on. We'll just do our thing. Yeah. Regardless of what happens. That's right. We got three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, so, hey, just wondering if anybody has found Conor McGregor's belt yet. It's about yay big, shiny, silver in color. Usually hangs around his waist under the picture of the gorilla and the word McGregor. If anybody sees us, sees it, just please let us know. And in round number two, Anthony Johnson, Ryan Bader, Josh Barnett, and Ben Rothwell, we think, are all fighting this weekend, but not all at once, because that would be illegal. And in round number three, Stipe! Kane. Stipe! They're doomed. All that plus Master Tweet Theater. Are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first... Like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Damon Garthenhauer. Okay. So he writes. No one would make up a name like no, that. No. Uh, he writes, did either of y'all old timers stay up late to see Rousey on SNL? Hashtag did watch question mark. Hashtag thoughts question mark. Uh, I watched it. Didn't stay up for it. I DVR'd it. Because uh, it was coming on right as I was going to bed on a Saturday night. But uh, I watched it on Sunday morning. Got my, my banana nut muffin, my coffee, and my co-main event podcast coffee mug. Sat down, watched it. I myself have not. That does not surprise me one bit. Uh, no, it's and it's because I realized something about Ronda Rousey hosting Saturday Night Live. Oh, here comes a deep thought. I, I do not give it. a fuck. <laughs> You're not even curious? Nope, don't care. You didn't want to see it, huh? I have not watched any of Ronda Rousey's acting, any of her films. Uh, haven't watched Saturday Night Live in its entirety probably since I was in eighth grade. 
uh, back during the the Halcyon Golden Years of uh, late night programming. You know, I admit that one of the big things that got me to tune in was after reading that New Yorker uh, feature about the movie studio head who expressed concerns about Ronda Rousey's acting ability when they were discussing. Uh, mile 22 or whatever that the movie is that she's in and they apparently then wrote down her role so that she didn't have to do much acting after that i wondered okay let's see let's see what the acting ability actually looks like when we get a chance to witness it uh in a different format and that people have to be paying attention especially after that article if movie studio executives are expressing doubts about her acting then we get to see it if she goes out there and she's terrible you got to think that maybe that that fear that people have that Ronda Rousey is going to flee for Hollywood full time any minute now might diminish a little bit. Right. Um, and reviews were not good coming out of this Saturday night live, but I will just, I will ask you since you are our analyst our on the ground analyst here for this, uh, was it because of a poor performance by Ronda Rousey or was it because of, uh, lackluster writing from the Saturday, Saturday night live crew or, in your opinion, a mixture of the two. Uh, I think it was mostly that the material was not great. And that, like you said, you haven't watched Saturday Night Live in its entirety for a long time. There's a reason for that. Saturday Night Live is not in its golden era right now. Uh, and they did not give her a whole lot to do. Like she mostly just played straight man roles. Uh, and there were times where you could tell this person is definitely the non-actor in the room. Sometimes where she's just kind of mumbling her lines and you can't really even tell what she says. When there was one bit that was pre-recorded, she was much better in that one than the stuff that they're actually doing live right then. Uh, so maybe that's encouraging for the, the movie studio people. But she did not had a whole, she did not even have a whole bunch of lines to really have to deliver. It seemed like, like they often do with pro athlete. Uh, hosts yeah. on Saturday Night Live uh, that they really tried to not make her do too much heavy lifting there. Yeah, you talk about how they didn't give her a lot to do, which makes me wonder uh, about her limitations and or if there was stuff that, that she or her publicist said that she would not do or stuff that they felt like she was just not capable of doing. Uh, it also makes me wonder how it feels to be a writer for Saturday Night Live because we can sit here on our podcast and talk about the material not being great. But I can imagine if you are a comedy writer uh, for that show, you are probably, I assume, listening to this podcast right yeah. now and being like, motherfuckers, I just had to write a two-hour show for Rhonda Jean Rousey. Like, I did my best, okay? But it's not like, uh, it's not like we, we had a star comedian coming on the show right right? well and i'm sure it's really tough to be a comedy writer in that setting where you know you're trying to be funny you're also trying to work within the limitations of network tv and a mostly live show and you have to do it every week Uh, that does sound really damn hard and then you know to have to work around different hosts with different sort of acting abilities and there were actually a few bits i found myself thinking of later and i was like okay that there either that was funnier than i realized at the time or there's a funny bit in there somewhere uh but i don't know i i kind of agree to some extent with the argument that Danny Boyd Downs made in our uh, trading shots this week where stuff like this is kind of cool. It's a kind of cool footnote for MMA, but it does not really change anything for anybody in any substantive way just because you know people aren't going to see Ronda Rousey on SNL and then think, oh, I got to go watch this thing where she beats people up. Like right. that's just not going to happen. It's kind of a cool thing. It's, it's, a, it's a fun thing to take note of. Um, I was just mostly glad to see that they did not do what they initially seemed like they were going to do, which is make every single sketch she was in 
the joke being that she was a female fighter. There was like one of those, and they did that in the monologue, and then they just moved on and did their usual stuff. Now, I suppose if you're Ronda Rousey, you do this because you have just suffered a terrible uh, defeat. You lost your title. You were the subject of numerous jokes on the internet. So this would have to be the beginning of some sort of a, uh, like a character uh, rebuilding mode for her, like a PR, try to get back in the good graces of the public, try to rebuild yourself into a, uh, you know, something of a star. Did it feel successful to you in that regard? Uh, I don't know. I mean, to me, I think we're not even in a position to answer those questions because those, those the other people are looking at it completely different than we are. We are some MMA dudes who know Ronda Rousey from the MMA world uh, watching her on a comedy show in which she has relatively few lines. Like, I'm sure to to other people, I, I could see how some other people who are have a stake in her entertainment career might be encouraged by that. Because uh, she didn't do terribly. I've seen far worse SNL hosts and way worse, like, athlete SNL hosts. Do you remember when Deion Sanders did Saturday Night Live? No, I do not. God, go look up some of those clips. It is awful. Absolutely awful. So, in the, like, athlete, uh, like, spectrum for a Saturday Night Live host, better than Deion Sanders. Probably not as good as Peyton Manning. Uh, but I, I could see how people. Looking at this as just kind of raw material would say, all right, we can work with what's here. Uh, we, we can improve upon that. And she still has like a, a, a charisma on camera. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think that probably as far as a rebranding exercise probably worked out okay. Next question this week comes to us from Eric Sharp. He writes, we have our next fight for Tony Ferguson or T. Fergal, as I like to call him. No one else calls him that. No. And it's Michael Johnson. That's right. The guy who was just outpointed or just pointed at and slapped by Nate Diaz for the better part of two and a half rounds. Is this punishment for T. Fergal getting sweat on Joe Silva's classy-ass suit? <laughs> uh, this is a little bit of a weird matchup for Tony Ferguson, who's won, what, seven fights in a row. Uh, in fact, the winning streak dates back to 2012 when he lost to Michael Johnson. Uh, at a UFC on Fox event. So is, we got a rematch here. And, uh, as, as the emailer points out, Michael Johnson, uh, coming in off back to back losses, both to Nate Diaz and that kind of hinky decision that he lost to Benil Dariush, uh, which he probably deserved to win nonetheless. Uh, kind of a weird matchup for Tony Ferguson, but from the little that I read about it online, it seemed like, uh, Ferguson insisted on fighting. He really wanted to fight, uh, at this particular event, uh, and, uh, as we all know, Habib Nurmagomedov, not quite ready to return yet. Um, so they offered him Michael Johnson. And I guess from an athlete standpoint, if you're Tony Ferguson and that's the last guy to have beat you, maybe you can understand why you would take this fight. Yeah. Yeah. From what I heard that, uh, he, he has a, he's expecting a baby in what, like, uh, April or May or oh, something. Oh, that's right. That's what it was. He wanted uh, to fight before his child was born. Uh, probably right. because he's been listening to our show and he knows that having a, a baby will just basically decimate your entire life. Yeah. Well, and also probably because he figures I'm going to need some money uh, when this baby shows up here and the finances of a professional mixed martial arts fighter are notoriously unreliable. So let me go ahead and fight while I can get paid since I don't know how long it's going to be until I can get in there and get paid again. And you look around. That's a problem with climbing up the ranks, especially in lightweight. Uh, it takes so long to get to a title shot. You got to win like 10 in a row for most people in order to get a title shot. And then you get to a point where there's only a couple people above you. And 
if they're booked or they're hurt or they're not available for one reason or another and you think, I got to fight before this date because I need the money, then you end up having to take somebody who's ranked lower than you a little bit farther down the totem pole. And I think that they decided, well, uh, Michael Johnson, at least there's some kind of narrative there since it's a rematch and, you know, T. Fergal is going around. God, that's just terrible. Uh, just crushing all his enemies. He might as well reach back into the past and, uh, settle an old score. I can see what they're thinking there, but it is a risky fight. You know, there's just not, aside from that paycheck, there's not a whole lot to gain. And, you know, weird shit can happen in an MMA fight. And the next thing you know, all that momentum you built up is gone. Right. And this is, this fight is scheduled for UFC 197 where you've already got the dueling title fights. Uh, and I would say, T. Fergal, boy, that just doesn't sound, just no. doesn't feel good coming out of the mouth. No. Uh, doesn't have a good mouth feel. No, terrible mouth feel. Uh, I guess Tony Ferguson and Michael Johnson probably winds up on the main pay-per-view card of that event. But, you know, depending on what happens with the rest of uh, padding that out, I would say it's not guaranteed that, that you would not wind up on the on the fight uh, Fox Sports 1 prelims of that. It might be the featured prelim, Could be the however. featured prelim, which I guess makes it all worthwhile every time. <laughs> Uh, next question this week comes to us from JJ Hamilton. He writes, so we can now add tennis to the festering pile of pro sports facing serious corruption and match fixing allegations. How confident can we be that MMA is on the level? I'm not referring to the quote unquote UFC fixes fights nonsense that Mr. Silva and Ortiz, uh, of Mr. Silva and Ortiz, which I think everyone agrees would be uh, stupidity in the first degree. I'm thinking more along the lines of outside betting interests and lower level fights. There are probably easier endeavors in which to be a fixee, ideally one where you don't have to get kicked in the head quite as much or potentially get fired after a loss. However, it seems the combination of low fighter uh, remuneration and a liquid uh, betting market would be fertile ground for skullduggery. Oh, it's not skullduggery. Yeah. Once you already, once you are already getting punched in the face for some money, agreeing to get more punched in the face for vastly more money doesn't seem beyond the realm of possibility. Cricketers have fixed matches. Cricketers. This is, uh, where we are as a civilization. Discourse, please, kind sirs, convince me there is good and truth in the world of men stripped to the waist in a cage. I should probably mention, maybe it goes without saying, J.J. Hamilton from England. Oh, okay. The guy referenced cricketers. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Turns out he's not from Alabama, which was my guess. Right. You know, Ben, I would love to set J.J. Hamilton's mind at ease here, but as we have talked about on the podcast before, one of the things about these relatively low fighter salaries and the fact that, that uh, you know, fighters have this uncertain earning potential, uncertain salaries, a lot of times beholden to the backstage bonuses that are uh, not guaranteed, and now losing sponsorship money with the Reebok deal, it would seem to make fighting, fight sports, and especially low-level, uh, you know, undercard fighters particularly uh, susceptible, I guess you would say, to someone who would want to come in and 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 fix a fight. Because if you have guys out there making ten and ten, it really doesn't take that much money for a a a skullduggar. A, skull, a person interested in skullduggery, a, a purveyor of skullduggery to come in and, and, you know, offer them 15 or whatever in order <laughs> to just so everyone makes a profit. Yeah. Have you followed at all the controversy now in professional tennis about match well, fixing? It's referenced here in the question. Is it? I, I didn't. I didn't notice that there was a tennis one. I just heard. Yeah. That so the, we get the first line in it. So we okay. can now add tennis to the festival oh, okay, pile of right. pro sports facing serious corruption. Okay, I was zoning out during that part. Uh, 
that I was listening to a thing on uh, NPR recently, and they were talking to this dude who was who had worked uh, inside horse racing, uh, and he also was an English dude. Uh, had worked inside horse racing. To was kinda, it was it JJ Hamilton? It might have been JJ. Actually, now I'm I'm positive it was JJ Hamilton, uh, and. He was talking about how, trying to help tennis deal with their problem, this and uh, do what they need to do to make sure that they're investigating it and uh, cleaning it up. And one of the things he was saying was that a key was kind of accepting the role that betting plays in your sport. Uh, and with horse racing, it's a lot easier for them to admit, like, this sport is about betting. Gambling is what fuels this sport. Uh, and tennis, you know, they didn't really think of it that way. And so they had to maybe admit to themselves that it was a bigger part of the game than they had realized. And I think you can say the same thing with fighting. You know, lots of people just recreationally wager on fights. It happens in Las Vegas like half the damn time where you can just walk right from the sports book after you place your bet to the arena floor. Uh, the, you got to think if you're the member of some fighter's entourage, and you might know something about some of the fights going on, you're already right there. You're right there in a goddamn casino. It couldn't be easier to place a bet on something. So I, I think that it is important to recognize that, that that's a very real concern, and it's not even a matter of the punching-in-the-face stuff. Like, it's way easier to fix a fight in MMA than it is in, like, boxing, where you do have to go out there and get punched in the face and convincingly fall down. In MMA, you can just stick your neck out there and hope the guy grabs a choke, and then you tap out. Uh, so... I mean, I think that possibility is always going to be there, and you only make the possibility more real by paying these guys low salaries. So you're basically relying on just, like, fighter pride to keep that from ever happening. And I think that that's been a pretty reliable uh, force so far, but it won't be forever. I mean, you know we've seen fixed fights before, and sometimes we've seen fixed fights in other organizations where you could look at it and be like, that's weird, something was happening there. I'm, there's probably been a fixed fight at some point in the UFC where maybe they just did it well enough that uh, we didn't notice. Yeah, I mean, you say fighter pride works out so far, only as far as we know. It's, I mean, impossible to kind of know that stuff for sure. I also would wonder, though, if if you were, and I, this I don't know for sure, if you were a uh, purveyor of skullduggery and you were interested in, in fixing one of these low-level uh, undercard bouts, I wonder how much money you could really scan, stand to make and or wager before... Uh, you know, the market itself, which casinos monitor this stuff because yeah. they the, were not born yesterday. The minute you put 50 grand down on Chaz Skelly. Which I, every fight I do. <laughs> yeah, the, the odds are going to go crazy. Right. You'd think it, you, you'd think that the potential to get, uh, to tip somebody off and a person in an official capacity would be pretty high. You'd have to be a low stakes purveyor of skullduggery and or spread it out across the entire card. Right. But I mean, in terms of embracing gambling, the UFC has, has done more and more of that as we've gone along. Now yeah, they, they talk put, about uh, the betting odds. Betting, betting odds show up on, on the TV and, and, uh, you know, the, the primary owners of the UFC themselves run casinos. So <laughs> it would be a weird thing for them not to feel comfortable with that. But anyway, as far as JJ Hamilton is concerned, yeah, I believe it's, uh, it's rife with possibility for fixed fights. I think one of the things that helps you as it compared to tennis, uh, just as the last thing, is that with tennis, they play so many damn matches. And that if you're like the number 27 ranked player and you're playing the number 78th ranked player and you think, all right, somebody offered me 200 grand to throw this one. Uh, all right, I'll go out there and throw it for one thing. It won't be like a career destroyer. People will raise their eyebrows and go, huh, I did not expect him to lose that match. And then they'll move on. 
But with an MMA fighter, if you have a long career, you might have 30 fights, maybe. And if you're just going to throw one of them away, it better be for a really good payday because uh, your whole career is going to hinge off of every single fight at that point. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe it wouldn't be as easy as we think it would. Um, last question this week comes to us from Mark in Australia. He writes, with the results of the last couple of main events being close split decisions, it got me thinking, why do we not see more draws in MMA? It seems like a better option than having a controversial decision and seeing as everyone seems to be getting a damn rematch these days anyway. Would it not be a better outcome for fighters both on their records and possibly their pay? Ah, uh, this comes up a fair amount. We see this in, in the debate over the MMA scoring uh, system and how that should be changed. Some people say that that judges should be quicker to to hand out even rounds. You know, quicker to hand out in addition ten eight rounds, stuff like that. Uh, and indeed, there are international organizations where draws are far more common. Uh, but I and I, I think part of this is cultural. I think in the United States, one of the reasons maybe even though we don't know it that people are drawn to combat sports is the guarantee of uh, easily distinguishable black and white consequences and, and outcomes. Like uh, you get into a fight with the understanding that somebody is going to be the winner. Um, I'm not sure that a draw is better than a controversial split decision as, as Mark from Australia suggests, but I also think people just don't want to see draws. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the thing about, uh, a better outcome on their pay. I mean, if you're if, if it's a draw, then nobody gets their win bonus, right? So I don't know if that'll really help. I, I do. I, it's tough because I do want to see more ten ten rounds or or more ten eight rounds, like just more like variance shown in the scoring. Because right now it makes no sense. Where if you beat a guy by a little bit in the round, you get a ten nine. If he comes out and smokes you in the next round, but doesn't come close to finishing you, but there's absolutely no question. It's not a matter of one or two punches here or there. He'll also get like a 10-9 round. That doesn't make any sense to me. So I would like to see that, but at the same time, I can't say when I hear this fight has been ruled a draw, I'm like, yeah, there we go. Finally. <laughs> yeah, and I think you're right that it is cultural. And if you look at uh like the big American sports, like football, basketball, baseball, you see uh, a bunch of sports where we – kind of at times go out of our ways to make sure that it does not end in a tie. And I think it's one of the weird things for us in soccer or football, as they they know it over there, uh, is how often you'll watch like a, a soccer match, even like international soccer matches, and it's like, well, it was 1-1. You're like, how? how? You're always going to go home? And nothing has been decided here. Uh, so I think that we want that, and we also feel like we need that for the way MMA works of guys moving up the rankings and down the rankings uh, if there's just a bunch of draws, then I think we're, no one's sure what to do with the e- either guy afterwards. You know, it's like how they used to do it in boxing, where uh, sometimes they let like the referee just make a decision if it went the full distance. Sometimes the fact that it just went the distance meant that it was a draw. And so you'd look at like the records of like dudes like Stanley Ketchell or something. He'd have like 15 draws throughout his entire career. I don't know. I think it would dis- require a reimagining of how we treat the what's next uh, for winners and losers kind of thinking in MMA. Yeah. And I think you get into a situation where you, where draws become more commonplace. I don't think it would take very many of them before people would start saying that we needed to have a sudden victory round or, you know, uh, a way to, de- to decide a winner every time. Yeah. Damn it. 
Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that the co-main event podcast misses from Tuesday through Friday when we're living our lives and doing our actual jobs and not recording the show. It's it's short. It's funny. You'll like it. If you don't like it, it's easy to unsubscribe, but we think you will. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. There is almost just too much awesome stuff going on with Conor Anthony McGregor to even know where to begin this round. And I think the first indicator of how much awesome stuff Conor McGregor does basically on a daily basis is that we are doing a round of our podcast on a Wednesday afternoon UFC pre-fight press conference, which doesn't normally happen. But Conor McGregor showed up to the UFC 197 uh, press conference last week pretty much ready to do his thing opposite Rafael Dos Anjos, the UFC lightweight champion. Um, A lot to talk about in terms of what's going on with McGregor and the UFC right now and his performance at this press conference. First thing I want to ask you, what was your favorite Conor McGregor moment at this press conference? You know... The anacondas on his feet and the car that spits fire. Yes. Yeah. That, that's some vivid imagery. That was one where when he said that, I was, I was immediately struck. I thought to myself, I'm so goddamn lucky to write about this sport. <laughs> and I, like, I even tweeted about it because like, when you think about it, like, imagine the difference between a Conor McGregor press conference and a Bill Belichick press conference, right? Where like, the point in almost every other sport is to not give the media anything to use at the press conference. And the point in mixed martial arts is supposed to be, and Conor McGregor totally grasps this, to uh, give us so much stuff that we can't even begin to know what to do with it. Now, I will say my personal favorite Conor McGregor press conference at the moment at this press conference is one that hasn't been getting a lot of play. And that involved what I think is kind of a genius plot twist by McGregor to show up to fight Dos Anjos, suddenly being very complimentary of Jose Aldo, who he just knocked out in his last fight in 13 seconds uh, and said a lot of things about Jose Aldo. How about uh, the, his relationship with the Brazilian people touched Conor McGregor's heart and how he was a real Brazilian champion and Dos Anjos is a traitor who has moved to America and all this stuff. My favorite part of that was right at the beginning of the press conference where McGregor mentioned as one of the things that he respects about Jose Aldo is that he, quote, never learned the language of the oppressor. <laughs> Which is the exact opposite thing that Chael Sonnen did to Anderson Silva leading yeah. up to their fight where he mocked him for never learning English. You know, that's where you get the sense that either Conor McGregor has paid a lot of attention to to how you hype a fight, or, and this is the the one I'd prefer to believe, he is just preternaturally gifted. He is a prodigy of saying shit 
of just going out there and talking some bullshit at another person. It makes you wonder how it went when he was a plumber, doesn't it? <laughs> like when Conor McGregor came to your house with maybe another workman to work on your pipes. Like how did those conversations go? It makes I mean, the, it just seems like maybe everyone he worked with either loved him or hated him. And probably the latter, I would guess. But I, I'm going to say this. You know, when McGregor came into the UFC, Ben, uh, I wasn't always that big of a fan. Because the trash talk, in general, trash talk wears on me just because I've, you know, seen so much of it. But at this point, dude, I, I, don't even, I just don't even understand how you don't go all in for the guy. He's the best pitch man we've ever seen in this sport. And that includes the guys who are in charge. <laughs> yeah, and no, I mean, maybe that at this point is becoming part of the problem. Yeah, well, I guess that's probably where we're headed, right? Because the the persistent rumors of some kind of a rift between Conor McGregor and the UFC it won't go away, no matter how many times Dana White gets on Twitter and yells at everybody for even suggesting weirdos, such a calls thing. Everyone weirdos. I mean, lucky guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, first of all, uh, but it it seems like now I don't know if we're just looking harder or if we're seeing more evidence that that kind of stuff is happening. You wrote about it. I read your thing about the, the question that the, the reporter asked about where's your belt. Uh, and then, which then leads to like a tirade about how dissatisfied he is with the uh, design of the fight poster. And then when he, and when he goes off on that rant about the fight poster, you're like, well, you kind of got a pretty good point there. Yeah. It's, it was the most interesting thing about the press conference, in my view, for sure. And, you know, you talk about rumors of a rift between Conor McGregor. I feel like most of the evidence that there is some something going on behind the scenes comes from Conor McGregor himself. Just because if you pay attention to how he talks, whenever he starts talking about his own business dealings, it is so markedly different than any other fighter talks about it. He never mentions the UFC. He always says, he always uses the first person for the most part, where he says, I made this fight. I wanted Holly Holm to fight on this card. You know, everyone's here because of me. And it feels like at this point, and that's a shift, by the way, compared to how he talked about the UFC when he first broke in. Right. Uh, We're all piling around in Ferraris and drinking $5,000 scotch together, weren't we? Sometimes he lapses into like a royal we kind of thing where he says... <laughs> just an awesome he, move. He, my favorite one was where he referred to, quote unquote, our Brazilian TV partners during this press conference. But I think that's more evidence because it doesn't seem like he's doing that to promote solidarity with the UFC. It seems like he's using that royal we to like position himself as an entity that has as much power as the UFC does. So that's all kind of interesting stuff that I think is is percolating under the surface, at least uh, in how Conor McGregor talks about his own career. Now, let's talk about the the way that this fight was framed at the press conference, because that's where the where is my damn belt quote comes from. Do you think that the UFC was trying to send Conor McGregor a message by, at least at the beginning of the of the build to this event, appearing to promote this super fight between Rafael Dos Anjos and Conor McGregor as just another main event fight? Because, you know, Dana, Dana White gave the champion versus champion angle some lip service to do the at the beginning of the press conference. But clearly, like, the poster doesn't reference anything about it being a super fight. There's no mention of Conor McGregor being the featherweight champ. Are they subtly trying to tell this guy that he's not bigger than the promotion, or does even thinking that give the UFC too much credit? I think that right now, you if you're trying to do that, you're setting yourself up for that to be used against you. 
Uh, and right, the the thing Conor McGregor has going for him right now is that remember in the the Fifth Element how that big like growing evil mass of things like if you fired missiles into it it just got bigger, yes. like that's what Conor McGregor has become at this point. And whatever you give him, he's gonna find a way to use it and to build up his star power. And if the thing you give him is like, hey, look at how big a star this dude is, the world loves him, which is what the UFC was giving him before, he's going to use that. And if the thing you give him is you're trying to back off a little bit of this stuff and maybe play it down in some of your promotional materials, he's going to use that. And he's so good at using it that we're all going to pay attention and devote an entire damn round about it on our podcasts, uh, even when there are actual upcoming fights and crazy bullshit to talk about. So it's clearly working. And I don't think, like, I think that all you can do right now, if you're the UFC, is hold on for the ride. Like, I don't, I don't really think that you can try to rein this dude in at this point without it backfiring completely. No, I agree with you. And I think that that is a very weird and different position for the UFC to suddenly find itself in. But it feels as though Conor McGregor is better at PR than the UFC is. It feels like if the UFC lashed out publicly against Conor McGregor the way it has done in the past to a lot of its other stars, you know, George St. Pierre and John Jones coming immediately to mind as, as uh, fighters that it has uh, crapped on at one time or another, for lack of a better term. It feels like if it tried to do that to Conor McGregor that he would roast them in the court of public opinion. And that has got to be kind of a scary position to be in if, the UFC, if you're the UFC, to think that maybe you created a monster. Created a Frankenstein, as the not a Frankenstein, yeah, as the uh, as the colloquialism would tell us uh, to call it. Um, but it just feels like uh, giving either the UFC was trying to send Conor McGregor a message at this press conference, or it is so like dogmatically dedicated to tradition and how it does every single fight and how it wants every single fight poster to look the same now that it missed out on the opportunity to sort of like from the very beginning frame this in the way that it should have been framed. It's also, I think, interesting to note that the day after that press conference, the day after Conor McGregor ripped into the UFC, uh, they tweeted out a promo for the fight that referred to it as a champion versus champion fight and a super fight on several occasions. So maybe that was in the works and in the pipeline all along, or maybe some video tech at the UFC had a terrible night because he stayed there all night putting together a champion versus champion promo. Yeah, and then we get back into a question we've asked in many different ways at many different times, which is what would be worse if you, like we sometimes like to think that the UFC is uh, crafting all these really complicated plans and conspiracy theorists on the internet love to get into really intricate ways that the the UFC or, or, or powerful forces in MMA might be guiding things? Or what if they were just like, oh, we didn't really think about it. You know what? That is actually a good idea. Yeah, we just like, so we legitimately forgot to bring his belt. Or like, we just, we legitimately didn't think he would need it because his belt is not on the line here. <laughs> I, like, that's what I said. Like, the two choices are either the, they were trying to send him a message or they just did a bad job. Yeah. At like framing this. The fight. belt is like he, sitting with the car keys. And I'm like, oh, I, you know, I had it in my hands and I was even telling myself before I got in the car, don't forget the yeah, belt. What did I forget? And then I get here and what did I forget? I forgot the belt. Well, we're going to have a lot more time to talk about Conor McGregor leading up to UFC 197. Right now, though, Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We're going to do a little bit of Master Tweet Theater. That starts right now.
Well, it's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am preparing for my heavyweight title shot. Oh, yeah? Oh, yes. They need someone with mic skills, someone who is not injured, and I am 75% of that. Yeah. Also, I would put you right now at a uh, buck 40. Oh, buck 47. Okay. Sir. All right. So, uh. It should be noted. You can fight in the heavyweight division up to 265 pounds. Okay. Exactly. I see where you're going. Well, I look forward to this one. Uh, I guess before we get started, is there any any sponsor you need to plug? Because if so, let's just get it out of the way. Yes, sir. There certainly is. This episode of Master Tweet Theater is brought to you by Friendster.com. Friendster. Log in and see pictures of everyone before they got fat. What are you doing? That's it. They didn't have much money. <laughs> All right. Is there a theme to this week's Master Tweet Theater? Yes, sir. There is. The theme is inside baseball. Technical secret discussions among UFC people about UFC stuff. I think that fits well with this podcast. It's very exciting. All right. Whenever you're ready. Mm-hmm. Yes. Let us begin. <clears throat> Tweet the first. Why every time you sod a knock on my door in the morning, I think it's Jehovah Witness? That is a good question. I would ask that question also to the to the tweeter in question. So, Chad, I think we're thinking non-native English speaker here, yeah, yeah. which means that it could just as easily be Jessica I, because uh-huh. she's, she's fooled right. us before right. and yeah. seems to be a favorite of Sir Nigel's. You got any thoughts? No, not really. Um, I'm going to guess... See, I thought about Rafael Dos Anjos, because uh, they'd be testing him. They do be testing him. But I don't know if he would make that joke about Jehovah's Witnesses. He's a religious man himself. Yeah, but I don't know. He's been in America so long, according to Conor McGregor, that he's basically Americanized enough to make a Jehovah's Witness joke. All right, right I'm going to guess uh, lightweight champion Rafael Dos Anjos. That's not bad. That's not bad. I'm going to guess... Somebody else who uh, who seems like they might get the two confused, Jehovah's Witness and USADA. I'm going to go Jesus lover Vitor Belfort. Hmm. Both fine guesses. Both non-native speakers of our mother tongue. And both wrong. It is Eddie Alvarez. Eddie Alvarez. Tricked us, Eddie. Yes. Capitalizing morning and spelling Jehovah phonetically but only capitalizing the initial U in USADA. Okay, so maybe it's possible that Eddie Alvarez is the one who wrote that text on Bruce Buffer's eBay auction page. <laughs> so that sounds like a lot of the hallmarks of the style. Points off for usage, Eddie Alvarez. But points on for writing time, so another decision. <clears throat> <laughs> Tweet the second. At Yoel Romero. FYI, gay Jesus isn't okay with PEDs. That feels like a Tim Kennedy to me. Yeah. I'm going to guess Tim Kennedy as well. Also, are we sure about Gay Jesus' stance on uh, PEDs? I don't know. He probably... Gay Jesus is probably all in favor of dudes getting all ripped. He wants to do whatever you can for ab definition. Gay (laughs) Jesus commands you. (laughs) But yes, it is is Tim Kennedy as part of a series of tweets antagonizing Yoel Romero during this difficult time in his career. Yeah, that wasn't even like the worst one. It got pretty rough there. Yeah, there were several. Tweet the third. 
Dana White, Matt Sarah, and Nick the Tooth need to catch these young scrapers out. Excuse me, check these young scrapers out. And then a video of two 13-year-olds fighting in a cage. Okay, Chad, what do you think? Somebody's obviously trying to be a real, real company guy, mm-hmm. acting like they actually watched that show. Who does that sound like to you? Um, my initial thought was Sage Northcutt. Okay. Is Reebok tagged in this tweet? Reebok is not tagged. Well, there no you go. One is tagged. Oh, it's probably not him then. He seems to tag every single tweet and every single picture with Reebok for some reason, even if there's no Reebok pictured. You still sticking with Sage Northcutt? I'm going to go with Sage Northcutt. Okay. Um, man, I was going to go with UFC Vice President of Communications Dave Schuller until misspelled Scrappers. Yeah, you probably get that right. No, I'm going Dave Schuller. Both fine guesses, both company men, and both wrong. It is BJ Penn communicating with us through his hive intelligence at bjpenn.com. Wait, so you're saying that that was a bjpenn.com tweet? That was a BJ Penn tweet, but his Twitter identity is bjpenn.com. It's also confusing. It's very confusing. Okay. Not to BJ Penn, though. He doesn't fuck around with that stuff at all. <laughs> <clears throat> tweet the fourth. Thanks. Nothing but a hard but great learning lesson. That's it? That's it. Chad? Matt Mitrione? I don't know. You think that was that Matt Matrione? Could have been. I don't know. Uh, all right. If that's what we're doing, then I'm going to go ahead and say TJ Dillashaw. Both fine guesses and both once again wrong. It is Jessica I. God damn you. So in that way, related to Matt Mitrione, kind of, because the thing happened to his to his eye. Get the hell out of here. Jessica, Collect your things and Jessica go. Jessica I. It's a body part. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. Thank God this is almost over. There are one, two, three, six exclamation points in this tweet. So just go ahead and brace yourself for my performance. All right. This time it's personal! Whoa. Um, maybe Michael Bisping? That's, That's an interesting guess. Oh, boy. I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, ben Rothwell. <laughs> both fine guesses, although, frankly, a little under-enthusiastic. And both wrong again. It is Dada 5000. Wow. The real Dada 5000 linking to a promotional video for his fight with Kimbo Slice. This time it's personal. <laughs> but there wasn't a last time. No. So. No. Really, I think he meant to type, this time it's sanctioned. <laughs> well... I'm just glad that Dada 5000 is in the rotation now for Master Tweet Theater. That can only lead to good things. For as long as his career shall last, I shall use Dada 5000. Well, I guess that about wraps it up. What do you else, What do you got going on, Sir Nigel? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished work on an exciting project about a husband who gets laid off from his job and becomes a stay-at-home dad, mercilessly abusing his children with a wire coat hanger. I see. And what's it called? It's called Mr. Mommy Dearest. (laughs) And what role do you play? I play the dry cleaner, sir. (laughs) Well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir.
Golchad, January 30th from the Prudential Center in lovely Newark, New Jersey. Your boy, Ryan Bader, he's going to get his main event spot on UFC on Fox when he takes on Anthony Johnson in a fight that feels like he's just going to be thrown in there with the hopes that Anthony Johnson knocks him right the hell out. But also, the co-main event, which I know you're excited about, Josh Barnett takes on the Dark Lord Ben Rothwell in a heavyweight fight that, hell man, for all we know, by the time I finish this sentence, it could be an interim heavyweight title bout. Yeah, as you are talking, I just saw Josh Barnett just tweeted this moment, I'm ready to give the fans of UFC 196 a heavyweight championship fight for the night. Stipe Miocic and I will bring the thunder, hashtag UFC 196. So uh, a lot of moving parts here. And it continues to move as we as we discuss it. Uh, boy, it would be kind of shitty for Ben Rothwell if Josh Barnett got pulled out of this fight and matched against Stipe Miocic because that would be kind of a double whammy for Rothwell, who lost out on his fight with Miocic to begin with. Uh, and you just mentioned, I mean, it seems like when you look at the Internet, conventional wisdom says if you want to make an interim title fight for UFC 196, it would, it would be Barnett versus Miocic or, or Rothwell versus Miocic. Uh, but you just said Barnett versus Rothwell as the interim title, and either one of those pairings to me feels just as good. Yeah, I mean, why? what would be the reasoning where you would say, okay, Barnett gets pulled from the fight and fights Stipe, or Rothwell gets pulled from the fight? Like, you just, you're flipping a coin, basically. Right, especially since Miocic had only been in this title fight for like 15 minutes. Right, right before and, it completely fell apart. And because he ended up in this title fight, let's not forget that he was supposed to fight Ben Rothwell over in Dublin, right? Then he pulls out of the fight... Ben Rothwell goes to Dublin anyway and becomes a man of the people over there. I, I think he, uh, I think he got a few votes for prime minister, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and then Stipe ends up fighting Andre Arlovsky, an easier fight than Ben Rothwell gets, uh, against Josh Barnett and knocks him out in 54 seconds and, you know, for, for a brief, fleeting, beautiful moment this afternoon was fighting for the UFC heavyweight title. So yeah, I think if, if that happens, if they take Josh Barnett out of that fight, put him in against Stipe for an interim title fight, Ben Rothwell will just become pure energy. He will, he will like cease Obi-Wan to... Obi-Wan Kenobi yeah, style. He'll become he, more powerful than we could possibly He, he will leave his human form, uh, and he will just turn into just, like, energy and gas. And beware. Everyone beware. You thought that there was a curse on the heavyweight division now? Oh, Jesus Christ. Well, let's talk about the part of this card that we we have no reason to believe will fall apart during the next, you know, 24 to 48 hours. Uh, your main event, light heavyweight, possible number one contender fight between Anthony Johnson and Ryan Bader. As you mentioned at the top of this round, it is Bader finally getting his chance to, to fight in a number one contender fight, we think. But doesn't it kind of also feel like, I don't know, I get the feeling that this is sort of almost preemptive booking for the John Jones-Daniel Cormier fight, which hasn't even officially been announced for a date and or event yet. But it kind of feels like we want, and when I say we, I mean matchmakers, we want Anthony Johnson to win this fight over Ryan Bader, uh, where I'm sure he's a, 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 a huge favorite. We want him to win that so that we can set up the John Jones-Anthony Johnson fight that we tried to do way back when before... Uh, John Jones ran that red light and T-boned a pregnant lady. Uh, so this is a, this is kind of a weird booking to me. Like it doesn't feel like a UFC on Fox main event fight to me. And it doesn't feel, and it feels like it's one of these bookings where, uh, 
we're trying to go somewhere specific with this. Well, see, I assumed where we were trying to go was Ryan Bader's going to come in here, win a questionable decision over Anthony Johnson. Daniel Cormier is going to uh, be all set to fight John Jones, who is then uh, pulled out of the UFC title fight when he decides to do full-time charity work with underprivileged children. And quits fighting altogether. And then we can get the fight we were dreaming of. Daniel Cormier, Ryan Bader for the UFC light heavyweight strap. Chad, I said I want the easiest fight in the division. I want Ryan Bader. Give me Ryan Bader, said Daniel Cormier. That's how you sell a fight when there's really nothing to sell. Yeah, Come on, would, you know you want that one. That would do upwards of tens and tens of pay-per-view buys right there. <laughs> Uh, I just looked at the odds. Indeed, Anthony Johnson more than a three to one favorite over Ryan Bader, who's a little bit, he's almost a three to one underdog. Are we selling Ryan Bader short here in this fight? I mean, I think. Yes. Okay. Well, that, that didn't even have to finish my question. I was going to say, if you, if you were going to bet, I think Anthony Johnson would be the way to bet. But as we've talked about before on the podcast, sometimes it feels like we forget how good Ryan Bader is. Yeah, and I think that that's been the most likable thing about Ryan Bader recently, right? Is that everybody keeps selling him short, uh, and he's he's been doing pretty well, and has been pretty vocal about everybody selling him short. Uh, so I think that if he could, if he finds a way to continue that here, I'm going to be totally into that gimmick, which will actually be his life. But for me, that that. That seems like something I could get into. And hey, it's not out of the realm of possibility. If you can just make it out of round one without getting knocked out, we, we've seen what can ha- the good things can happen to you as long as you can get up off the floor after one or two Anthony Johnson punches in the first round. Yeah, nobody's trying to say Ryan Bader is Daniel Cormier, certainly, but he does have the skill set that you'd think if there was, if there was a, a tailor-made skill set to give Anthony Johnson trouble or even to give him pause, it would maybe be that wrestling base that Ryan Bader comes out of Ryan Bader's one five fights in a row dating back to December 2013 when he got off the schneid with a big unanimous decision victory over the hippo, Anthony Paroche. Who recently retired just yeah, today, I believe. Announced his retirement this week. Now, but here's the thing. Imagine that, imagine Ryan Bader goes in there and he say he knocks out Anthony Johnson in the first minute with like spinning capoeira kick. Just knocks him cold. Okay. You might as well say flying drop kick off the top of the cage. And, and. Missile drop an- kick. Announces, you know, this is the new Ryan Bader. You're not ready for this. I'm coming for that title. And we were all like, wow, that was incredible. What a finish for Ryan Bader. And then he fought either Daniel Cormier or John Jones. We'd still just be like, well, here comes an execution that is barely worth watching. That's the, the problem for poor Ryan Bader at this point. It's almost like, People have made up their minds what he's capable of, and they're not willing to change it even when he shows that he is capable of more. Well, yeah, I mean, it, uh, I think if he goes out there and knocks Anthony Johnson out, which no one expects that to happen, uh, if he does that, then like, yeah, that's I think it goes without saying that that's the best case he could make for himself as a legitimate uh, number one contender that and that he just beat Rashad Evans and just beat Phil Davis and just beat Ovin St. Prue before that. So like to add Anthony Johnson to that list would make it a fairly uh, I- impressive list of victories headed into a potential title fight. And yeah, he does. Ryan Bader does seem he might even be the prototypical dude for a guy who's been in the UFC for so long since 2008 that we feel like we've seen, like we feel like we've got the blueprint on this guy. We've seen the best that he has to offer. We've seen uh, everything that he is. We understand who he is, and we've decided that he's not, 
he's not championship material. And some of that obviously has to do with the fact that the champion in his division is probably the best fighter in the world and maybe the best, Who already fighter, beat him. Yeah. best fighter of all time. Uh, but that is sad for a guy like Ryan Bader that it's almost like his own longevity has made us not believe in him in a certain way. Yeah. That is sad. Thanks for you're really bumming me out. Just now. really trying to bring you down. Uh, well, let's do. We got a couple minutes. Let's talk about Josh Barnett versus Ben Rothwell. Assuming that it happens, let's check Twitter one more time just to make sure that uh, <laughs> that he has not been pulled out of this fight as of yet. I really hope that. See, and the other part is, that I, I just really wanted to see that fight. And even though, as I mentioned before, it in that in a way also bums me out because I like both Ben Rothwell and Josh Barnett both good dudes who, I, who I've known for a little while and it's one of those where I have no idea what I'd like to see happen kind of like the final fight scene in Warrior uh, where you realize that there is both no good and no bad outcome there because well, what the hell's going to happen uh, and I think that if you go in there and you just pluck one of those guys out of this fight then the the thing that you're left with is an interim title fight where we don't know what the interim is going to be and it's all just going to feel like you're just trying to short-term save your ass for the purpose of pay-per-view buys. That's why I really hope they just leave it, leave it where it is, take your losses on the heavyweight title fight, uh, and let's find out how long everybody's going to be hurt before we go do anything crazy. Is that too much to ask? No, I think that the co-main event uh, podcast is uh, in agreement that the that if you are going to do a an interim title fight, that the interim title fight to have is is... Josh Barnett against Ben Rothwell because it just doesn't make much sense to undo that matchup out of service to Stipe Miocic, who a guy everyone knows who listens to this podcast. We love Stipe. Stipe. But in this particular instance, I'm just not sure it, it makes sense to, to create more havoc in a situation to try to like do a service for him, who was, as I said, only in this title fight for about 15 minutes before Verdum was like, oh, you know what? Like, I'm actually kind of hurt myself. Uh, <laughs> so then what you're going to do is you're going to take Barnett out, put him against Stipe, who will then be hurt. Uh, and then uh, Fabrizio Verdum will decide, you know what? Actually, I feel a little better. I, I iced it. I iced it and I rested. And now I feel like I could go. And then Josh Barnett will get hurt. And then it's only Ben Rothwell, last man left standing. And he becomes heavyweight champion out of just default, right? Uh, or just uh, everybody, we wake up the morning of the fight and Fabrizio Verdum has been turned into a newt. <laughs> and then we think, oh, God, don't anger Rothwell. He's become too powerful. We're going to get into some UFC 196 talk more in round number three. But for right now, Ben, uh, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? All right. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Uh, Chad, I don't know if uh, you saw this interview that uh, Johnny Hendricks did with the, I believe, the Dallas Morning News, maybe, uh, where, for one thing, I did not realize that Johnny Hendricks has uh, an attack dog. <laughs> they refer to him as a security dog. Uh, but uh, Johnny Hendricks talks about how he needs to go back up uh, to do some more training. He's been trained so much on protection uh, quote, he is getting antsy. He just wants to hurt somebody. Whoa, this is about his dog, dog a, about? a German Shepherd. Is that the Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Because Are You not, Fucking Kidding Me? It's not even the Are You Fucking Kidding Me. The oh. Are You Fucking Kidding Me comes later where, uh, as you might have heard, he said that he closed his big rig steakhouse uh, yeah. that he had. Never even got to go there and enjoy the big rig steak. Yeah. Uh, reviews weren't great uh, from what I heard. Um, 
he referred to it as a kind of a learning lesson, or a, like I believe the quote is, "I tried a business that failed. You learn from it and move forward." And then the next question is, "So what else on the side are you working on, Hendrix?" I thought about a reality show. I want to try to start Baja truck racing. I want to do hunting and fishing. Are you fucking kidding me? Why is no one looking out for Johnny Hendrix, man? What is going on? Are we trying to see Johnny Hendrix just pour all his money into failed steakhouses and Baja racing trucks? Are you fucking kidding me? Somebody help this man out. Are you fucking kidding me? Well, now I that feel, makes sense. Now I feel kind of bad that I didn't do my Are You Fucking Kidding Me about Johnny Hendrix's security dog, because that is incredible. The dog's name? What's that? Hero. Oh, no, that's a good name for a security dog. He just wants to hurt somebody. <laughs> well, Ben, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me has to do with how this particular kind of shit happens. Because Ken Shamrock, Ben, I don't know if you saw this, he went on Access TV Fights last weekend, uh, and Pat Militich sounded like he was maybe sort of halfway kidding when he asked Ken Shamrock if the winner of his upcoming fight with Hoist Gracie would be willing to fight... Dun, dun, dun. Pat Militich. But then Scott Coker heard about it. And so he tells MMA Junkie, sounding a little bit more serious, quote, Pat is definitely one of the guys that built this sport into what it is today. We haven't had any discussions with him as of yet, but we're happy to entertain any idea that we think would entertain our fans. Now, see, this is how it works, Ben. Next thing you know, Militich probably flies to San Jose. He and Coker go out for a nice meal. They have a couple of soda pops. And the next thing you know, we're signing fucking contracts. Are you fucking kidding me? At some point, we got to stop doing this. Or else, we're going to run out of dudes, man. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, we had planned on spending round three of this podcast talking about this injury to Cain Velasquez, which forced him out of UFC 196 and put Stipe Miocic in against Fabricio Verdum. Uh, but we're lucky we wrote those plans in pencil because it didn't take very long before Fabricio Verdum also decided to say fuck it and dropped out of this fight with his citing his own injuries. As we've said over and over again today, this is a fluid situation. We don't know what's going to end up happening. Uh, we assume additional news will probably break right before this podcast gets published. Who do you want to talk about first, Verdum or Velasquez? Uh, I want to talk about how right now I'm looking at the UFC 196 Wikipedia page. I tried to look at it a few minutes ago, and it was not able to provide me with any information because... Uh, the jokesters have been at it. Yeah, I see uh, Joseph Benavidez is fighting Ronda Housey at uh, at Flyweight as of right now. It's a fluid situation, however, so keep your eye out uh, for that one. Um, let's talk first about Cain Velasquez, because I think that one's a little simpler to deal with. Like That's a, that's a situation we understand, right, just because we're so damn used to it with Cain Velasquez. Uh, and it's a situation where you feel... Some sympathy for him, because, damn it, you know he hates this more than anybody, having to pull out yet another fight. This is the third time he's been booked against Fabricio Verdum, and they fought exactly once. 
Uh, you know, this is the should be the prime money making years of his career. And the way the UFC heavyweight division is going, you know, he's 33, which is just a spring damn chicken these days. But with all these injuries, you also have to wonder how long he's going to be able to fight. And it's a mix of sad and frustrating. And you know, it's even more frustrating for him, but you still, some part of you is just going, man, I feel really bad for the guy. He just seems to have the worst luck. Or is he doing something wrong and refusing to learn from it? Yeah, well, there's no way to know right now. Um, I just feel like this, maybe the saddest part of this is, like you said, Cain Velasquez is only 33 years old. He, if he can physically continue to be a professional fighter, he's still got a lot of time left in this division. We would think just to, depending, you know, considering how old a lot of the other guys in his weight class are, but it feels like he's already reached the point where his legacy is kind of tarnished by this injury stuff, especially this particular uh, substitution that we had to make and to find out that he has a back injury and he can't make this fight. This felt like the final nail in the Cain Velasquez legacy coffin. Not saying he can't come back and win the UFC heavyweight championship for an, a third time and, and go on to be, you know, the greatest UFC heavyweight of all time, a, a position that is uh, currently vacant, I think, and taking applications. But I think we're always going to look back on this dude and be like, man, imagine how good Cain Velasquez could have been between the ages of, you know, 30 and 33 had he not seemingly every time we turned around had to drop out with an injury. Right. If he had been healthy and fighting at sea level. Yes. The entire time. Yeah. If yeah. he had not screwed him by having a fight at elevation. Right. And then giving him no notice that it was going to, no way it actually, no, they did tell him. He did. He did actually that know that, that was going to happen. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I think that you're right that we're always going to wonder what could have been with Cain Velasquez. And I wonder too, Cain Velasquez has to wonder what could have been for Cain Velasquez. Does he not? Cause how, I mean, how can you, I mean, I know it's really easy for people on the outside to say, oh, like it's, you've got to be your training techniques or something, but I don't, we don't see the same thing happening to, all these other dudes at AKA. I mean, they seem to have a fairly normal uh, injury rate for the the other top stars coming out of AKA. I mean, you could say Nermi, but he's not even there all the time. Right. Uh, Luke so, Rockhold seems like he's doing okay. Seems like he's doing saying. okay. Daniel Cormier seems like he's doing okay. Uh, so I think people are really quick to assume that it must be something wrong that they're doing coaching-wise. Uh, but it just seems to be that maybe he's just kind of naturally injury-prone uh, or maybe he's just not managing to heal from some of these injuries. I also got to say, my first thought when I heard that he was pulling out of this one was, remember when he fought Junior Dos Santos in that UFC on Fox card, and we found out later that they both had pretty serious knee injuries, and the the word was that there was at least a heavily implied, nobody better pull out of this shit because right. it's our first fight on Fox thing. Uh, and I remember being at AKA a couple days after that fight and asking Javier Mendez, like, oh, I hear that Cain Velasquez had a, had a knee injury. What's up with that? And he just shook his head and immediately walked away uh, and didn't even want to talk about it. And I wonder if, you know, he went in there and got knocked out. Do you tell yourself a story afterwards that says, hey, you got knocked out because you fought when you shouldn't have. Don't ever do that again. And then that therefore makes you more willing to pull out of fights in the future. Boy, that's a good question. I mean, you could certainly see that becoming part of a guy's psyche and part of his mindset. Uh, if you're Cain Velasquez, though, at this point, you might want to have to rethink that just because it's gotten it's gotten to the point where it seems even right or wrong. The perception is that you can't make it to the cage right. at this point. Um, so you got to definitely uh, and who knows if that's how he feels. But if that is how he feels, you'd think that you would have to to 
maybe replot that out in your mind. And you're right that we do have to consider, like, imagine how Cain Velasquez feels. Like, not only did, was he positioned as the prototype for the future of the heavyweight division, the style of fighter that was going to be successful in the days following uh, the era of the Giants when Brock Lesnar was the champion. Uh, we thought that this like smaller, more athletic heavyweight was going to be the order of the day, but like he was positioned as a major cog in the UFC's efforts to to spread south of the border and to move into Mexico and and maybe do Latin America stuff and 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 you know all of the international expansion on this continent, uh, and that just has not worked at all. So if you are Cain Velasquez, yeah, man, you got to probably kind of be wondering what might have been. Let's talk about Verdum for a few minutes before we got to wrap this thing up. Do you feel his pain a little bit? I kind of do. I feel like this move is the kind of move that gets you in serious hot water with the dudes who run the UFC. But at the same time, like if you are Fabricio Verdum and you are legitimately injured and you are laboring through your training camp being like, well, I'm the champ. I can't pull out of fights. I got to make this date against Cain Velasquez. And then the guy that you're training for pulls out. I feel like it's pretty easy to at that point say, well, fuck it. Yeah. Well, no, I, I'm sure then do you just walk around feeling like, why couldn't I have pulled out Friday? Why couldn't I have beat this guy to the butt? Because you're right that it makes you seem so much worse to be the second guy who pulls out of it uh, when you were trying to do the, the tough guy thing. I think where he made the mistake is in saying like, well, if it had still been Cain Velasquez, then I would have fought. Don't say that, man. Don't, don't say that even if it was true. Just tell people like, you know what, I was planning on, on, I was unsure on this one. I was thinking I might have to pull out. Now that I hear Kane's out, screw it. I'm out too. Like, don't get, but you know how MMA fans are. As we've talked about before, no one loves to accuse people of being scared to fight quite like the people who watch fight sports love to accuse professional goddamn fighters of being scared to fight. Yeah. It's the first thing we reach for. And like I said, man, I think that's a perfectly understandable point of view for Fabrizio Verdum. It just also seems like maybe he was a little bit too honest for his own good. Uh, I'm looking at the Sure Dog UFC 196 card. Oh, so there's no skullduggery yeah, there? not quite as, as uh, susceptible to skullduggery as the Wikipedia page. Um, so right now we've got Johnny Hendricks versus Stephen Wonderboy Thompson listed as the main event. And then you've got Roy Nelson versus Jared Rochalt, Ovin St. Preux versus Rafael Cavalcante. Joe Benavidez versus Zach Makovsky and Josh Berkman versus KJ Noons as potential uh, main card fights. Uh, I guess you got, I don't know if the, if the UFC can uh, pull stuff off pay-per-view. I don't know if it can convert pay-per-views into non-pay-per-views, but I don't know how you sell this one, man. You got to do something, right? Yeah, this is the kind of pay-per-view where we'll both be trying to go over to each other's house. To no, watch it. We'll be going over to your house because you, you get paid back, right? You get reimbursed. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I might submit, I might submit the, the expense on this one and then be like, you paid for that? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Not going to do it. Uh, so yeah, we'll monitor that situation. We'll see what happens. We'll see if Josh Barnett versus Ben Rothwell or Josh Barnett versus Steve Miocic or who knows, man, even Ben Rothwell versus Steve Miocic. Everything we've said here today has been a waste of time. It's, you know that it, the, the entire situation, the UFC will have disbanded its heavyweight division by the time we get this podcast posted. By the time we check the internet. All right. Well, let's just do just saying stuff then and then we'll get out of here so we don't have to waste anybody's any more of anybody's time. Uh, Ben, I don't know if you saw it this weekend, but while you were watching I guess you didn't watch it, but while MMA fans were watching Ronda Rousey on Saturday Night Live, my wife was out to dinner with her friends, my children were asleep, I decided to check out some World Series of Fighting 
over on the NBC Sports Network. Okay. Every time I find out that I get it on my cable package, I'm surprised. A pleasant surprise. This kid, Bryce Thug Nasty Mitchell, got a first round submission victory over Jorge Medina to improve his professional record to 5-0, and all of them by first round submission and all of them in the last year. He was also 5-0 and as an amateur from 2013 and 2014, all of them by first-round submission. So he seems like a nice little prospect in the, in the lightweight division. That's not the thing that caught my eye about him, though. The thing that really made me remember Brian Mitchell was that he went out there and got this win in a pair of woodland camouflage trunks. And when it was over, he threw on one of those Run DMC logo shirts that said Thug Nasty across the front and then jumped on the mic with our guy Joey Varner, Hollywood Joey Varner, Hollywood Joey. and described about how he is, quote unquote, straight thug in the streets. Huh. Now, Ben, this week, I'm just saying, how am I supposed to ever accept this Reebok deal in the UFC as long as World Series of Fighting is letting guys get dressed up in sweet outfits and act the fool on the mic? It just reminds me too much of how things used to be. I'm just saying. You're saying you feel like things used to be pretty thug nasty, and now they're a little too flexibility? A little too flexibility, a little bit too corporate for me over there. Not so much thug nasty. I feel you. I see what you're saying. Well, Chad, this week, I'm just saying, I don't know if you saw that uh, Floyd Mayweather did another one of those video interviews, I believe, with Fight Hype uh, after you know he initially talked to them, made those comments about... Uh, Conor McGregor and Ronda Rousey succeeding because of racism still existing in the world, basically, uh, which somehow became a really controversial statement. Everybody had to fire back on it. And they went back and talked to him some more. But the buried comments he had in this one were about UFC president Dana White, who Floyd Mayweather says used to kind of run around with him as a member of his entourage. And he referred to him. He re- acted like he just remembered him as uh, a, quote, little square dude before he shaved his head and acted tough. Uh, but the amazing thing is how Floyd Mayweather presents this information as if he is he is the kind, uh, welcoming father figure in all of this, just welcoming everybody under the big tent of the Floyd Mayweather entourage. Uh, and he really hammers this home with this quote about Dana White uh, before he became big time. Quote, at that particular time, I think the guy had a Honda. But I didn't judge him. Ooh. Chad, I'm just saying, sometimes it is when you think you were telling us what a nice guy you are that you actually inadvertently reveal yourself to be an asshole. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at uh, Saturday night's Johnson versus Bader card. And maybe we'll even know what's happening with the UFC heavyweight title at that point. So I know you'll want to tune in for that. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know what I'm going to tell people about you when you sell the movie rights to your book and get all big and famous and rich? I'm going to say that I remember you back when you lived in this rental house. At that particular time, I believe his doorbell was all shattered to shit and you didn't even want to touch it because you thought you'd get electrocuted. I didn't judge you. You know, you... Except I wouldn't judge you, so it would be totally technically true. Well, last week, you successfully rang the doorbell.